Five. Welcome to the fifth episode of our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline. And I'm Caroline White. In this podcast, Sean will be interviewing Dr. Sandra Waddock, a professor of management at Boston College who holds the Galligan Chair of Strategy. Dr. Waddock's interests include transformation catalysts, memes and narratives, intellectual shamanism, stewardship of the future, and multi-sector collaboration. She is the author of 15 books, and her work has won numerous awards, including the Best Book Award in 2014 from the International Humanistic Management Association and the Lifetime Achievement Award in Corporate Social Responsibility, the latter from Humboldt University in Berlin. We go over to the interview now. Could you just take us back to your initial interest and how it's evolved over the years? Well, I've been in academia since 1985, um, when I got my doctorate at Boston University. And I initially studied public-private partnerships, what then was not even known as cross-sector social interaction or cross-sector multi-stakeholder partnerships, but that's what they were. So I was studying public-private partnerships. And there's a central core to all of my work, even though it can seem very eclectic at times. And that question has to do with how do we get our business institutions and institutions in general to better support the way we want to live on the planet, the way we can live in good ways on the planet. And that was engaged, engaging with business involvement in schools. And sort of from there, I moved on to studying the financial link between doing corporate social responsibility, doing good in the world as a company, and whether that would pay or not. And I had, an, I guess, an implicit assumption there that if you could show financial analysts and business people that it paid to be good, they would automatically just sort of drift over in that direction of doing good. 30-some years later, not so much. So clearly that theory of change wasn't working, but I did a lot of that work over the years. And then I got involved with our, I'm at Boston College in the United States, and we have the Center for Corporate Citizenship. And there was a director there named Brad Guggins who had just joined BC to head that center. And I got involved with him on the issue of corporate citizenship. So I did a lot of writing on corporate citizenship over the years and never quite left behind the orientation towards multi-stakeholder things or the systems view, because this was all about changing the systems. And I had been educated to think in terms of systems. And by nature, I'm kind of an eclectic thinker. So then I actually got approached by someone in the early 2000s from the United Nations to do some work on what he had called total responsibility management. So we published several papers on that. I also got involved at that time with the UN Global Compact, which had just gotten started by inviting the then head of it, the initial head of it, Georg Kell, to come to a meeting at our annual conference and sort of stayed in connection with the UN Global Compact for many years. And then maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I started to realize that as much work as companies are now doing on corporate social responsibility, and as good as some of that work is, it is not the kind of change that we really need in order to bring about the system transformation so that business purpose has a different way of being in the world than simply to make wealth for shareholders, which is how many businesses still understand what their purpose is. And so I got involved with a number of initiatives, a lot of them that Steve Waddell was putting together, where we started really thinking about how do you bring about large system change and what we would now call system transformation. And so 
from there, my work has evolved in a variety of ways, but the core to that is still that same question of how do we get our institutions to serve society in more productive ways, but it really revolves around system transformation. And in the course of that, I got invited by chance to do an essay for a change management journal. And in thinking about that and whether I was actually a change theorist, I realized that my whole life had kind of been around change theory, my whole academic life. And so I started thinking about, well, why is it that even organizational change is so hard? And that paper was kind of a breakthrough for me because I began to realize it's the story, the narrative that we tell ourselves about who we are as an institution or an organization or a society or world for that matter. And that story, which is what Donella Meadows talks about as mindset, that story informs how we act in the world. And underpinning that story, and I think largely, still largely unrecognized, are sets of what British scholar Susan Blackmer calls memes. You know, and we know memes from the internet. We know about memes uh, because memes are things that you put up on your YouTube or on your Facebook or on your other forms of social media, and they get spread from person to person. But memes are, in Blackmore's definition, core units of culture. So their ideas, their phrases, their images, their symbols, their words even, they get embedded in people's minds and that constitute, they're the basis of the stories and narratives that we tell each other. And so what I realized in writing that paper was that if we want to change our systems, we need to begin at that level of memes because it seemed to me why businesses don't change when you input and try to change them is that people still hold on to these same old beliefs and same old ideas. And so it's really hard for people to let go of them. And so changing those memes becomes really important. And so I guess part of the work I've done since then has to do with trying to figure out what are some of these core memes that we could use to bring about system transformation. And then I got involved with some work that Steve Waddell was again doing. He created something called the SDG Transformations Forum. And I became part of that and met a whole great group of global thinkers on system transformation and just got exposed to a whole lots of ideas and ways of thinking that I hadn't ever been exposed to before. And then when the pandemic hit, we founded something called Bounce Beyond which is an initiative to try to help next economies, which people perceive as popping up all over the world, to really develop around these these ideas about life. What's kind of core is that people know that there's flaws in the way we think about our economies and economics today. But most people have been hesitant for one reason or another to come out and say, we need to change the core understandings. And with this work I had done on this idea about memes, I thought, we need new memes. We need to change these memes. If we're going to bring about transformation, we need to change these ideas. To the idea of the transformation catalyst, which was what we originally started with, when I was just coming out of my doctoral program back in the 1980s, I was working with Jim Post, who was my dissertation advisor, prior to that. And we did a couple of studies where we looked at new initiatives that emerged in the uh, sort of the second half of the 1980s, things like Partnership for a Drug-Free America and Hands Across America, which were global in their scope and national in their scope. And were trying to bring about systemic change without actually doing the change themselves. We called these things catalytic alliances. And so that thinking about catalysis, 
sort of had been in the back of my mind for a long time. And when Bounce Beyond came into being and we started trying to do this work with what we're calling next economies, and then I started seeing all these initiatives popping up around the world, both just before and during the pandemic, particularly probably in the last five years or so. And they are acting as catalysts too. But I realized that these are transformation catalysts. These are entities that are specifically trying to do system transformation. And so that's, I think, how I came to you, <laughs> your attention anyway. <laughs> you mentioned the systems, but you, I don't think you mentioned complexity. And you put some emphasis on the memes and narrative stories and so on. But I'd love to draw in because there is a foundation of complexity. Yeah, so for years I have been reading about complexity theory and chaos theory and this idea of wicked problems. And when we st first started this work on um, large system change, one of the things I realized is that these systems, human socio-ecological, socio-economic systems are all complex adaptive systems. So they're deeply embedded and kind of constituted of processes of complexity. First, we start with complexity. So complexity means things are interdependent, there's dynamism, things are connected to each other. When you push over here, you can't really predict what's going to happen over there. So they're unpredictable. Everything is linked together. There's no easy way to tell where in a complex system where something started or where it's going to end. And when you do start a change initiative, you can't actually plan it the way we always like to think that we could plan change. So that was part of it. That's because these systems also have another characteristic. They are fraught with, as I like to say, what are known as wicked problems. And wicked problems have the same kind of characteristics that complexity does. You have many stakeholders. They have very different perspectives. They're interdependent. They're interconnected. They may or may not agree on the definition of the problem. They may or may not agree on the means to solve the problem. And they may or may not agree on when the problem has been solved because there's no, as they say, no stopping point. And such systems, I call them complexly wicked or wickedly complex these days because well, you can't really tear those two ideas apart. When you start something, you can't ever go back to the previous state. It's the problem of entropy in physics, actually. If things start dissolving or changing, you can't actually bring the system back to the state it was. So whatever you attempt is going to have consequences, whatever changes you attempt. Now, how do you make change in such a system? Well, that's where the idea of memes and narratives becomes so important. And why in our group, the Bounce Beyond Initiative, I'm probably the one who talks most about we need to figure out what the core message here, what the narrative is, what the ideas are, because really the only way to guide these many different actors that are acting in the system, since you can't control them and they're going to do their own thing, is to provide a common shared set of ideas, story, vision, narrative, some sort of overarching framework that allows people to move their initiatives in the same direction, even if they're doing their own independent thing. And the idea for a transformation catalyst comes right out of that recognition. It's embedded in that idea of complexity, complex wickedness, and the foundational idea of the importance of the narrative and the stories. And for me, the core values, memes, core ideas that you're going to repeat from person to person to person, hopefully reasonably intact. Maybe we'll move on then to what exactly is a transformational catalyst. 
and how do they act or what are the competencies or skills or what are the methods and tools? Can you give us some insights into that? Yeah, I, a few, because these are still emerging entities and we're still learning about them. And so we don't really know all that much about them, but I'll give you our definition from the paper that Steve Waddell and I wrote. The transformation catalysts are organized entities that work catalytically with actors. That catalytically means that they probably don't do the actual work, but they work with others that are already trying to do various aspects of the work to enhance their ability to address the complexity with which transformation is associated. So they're self-organized, self-governing systems. They're loosely coupled. They're not necessarily tightly linked. They don't have control over other entities, but they bring them together. I like to say they connect, cohere, and amplify the work of many initiatives. And why is that important? It's because, as Paul Hawken told us in 2007 in his book called Blessed Unrest, there are maybe million to two million, probably these days, many more initiatives that are trying to bring about a better world. The problem is they're small, they're fragmented, they don't connect with each other. And so one is doing their work over here and another is doing their work over there. And they are not individually capable of bringing system transformation about. And what the transformation catalyst recognizes is that by bringing these entities together, by getting them into dialogue with each other and helping them to do the three or four things that we talk about. We talk about seeing, sense-making, connecting, and catalyzing action as sort of the core functions of what the transformation catalyst does. By helping them to do that, they, not, not the transformation catalyst, but they can then take much more effective action. That's how Steve and I have characterized what a transformation catalyst. And there's any number of kinds of actions. Have you got any particular examples of transformation catalysts or even the process working? I know you've done some studies on some groups, but maybe you could give an example of how it might work in practice. Let me take the bounce beyond example, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. It's still an emerging entity. We're still doing fundraising for it, but it, but we are already working with four different initiatives. I'm not so deeply involved in the actual implementation of this. So Bounce Beyond is this initiative that is trying to create these next economies. So we're working right now with four different groups. One is the South Devon Bioregion Group. Another is the Social Purpose Institute in Canada. Another is Sustainable Seafood, trying to bring about sustainable seafood. And the fourth is a country, it's Costa Rica, which has sort of got a regenerative approach to Costa Rica, which incorporates many, many different things. The genius behind that is Edward Muller, and he is just amazing. So what we help them do, they want different things. They need different things. They're at different stages of development. They're different sizes. They're different geographies. They're all unique. And that's one of the other things that you have to deal with in a system transformation. Each situation is going to be unique. You can take lessons and, and look for patterns. This is what we can do from understanding complexity theory. You can look for patterns, but you can't necessarily, you can't do the same thing and expect it to have the same results because the context is different, the people are different, and the needs are all different. So one of the things that we've done with a couple of these initiatives is that one of our members, Peter Jones, is a design theorist at OCAD University in Toronto, and he's helped people to implement mapping processes. So mapping is part of the seeing function. So if you want to understand your system, you have to be able to understand who's in your system, 
who's doing this type of work that may not be in your system, but that you might be able to connect with. And what are they doing? And so mapping, you can do that through stakeholder interviews. You could do that through formal processes of mapping. There's any number of those kinds of mapping processes. But in any case, you need to get a sense of the lay of the land. And so we've done that kind of work with a couple of the initiatives. The idea there is that there's something out there that is not usually formed and people don't think of it this way, but what Steve Waddell and our group now calls the transformation system. So the transformation system consists of all of the actors that are in a system and who are trying to bring about this change, but they may not be connected with each other, they may not know about each other. And if you can bring them together, then you can form a, a system that is working towards change that has the power to be much more effective. So seeing is the first piece of that. And then making sense of that, this sort of sense-making process, which gives meaning to what you've found. So if you've got your map or, or you understand what the system looks like now, now you can begin to make sense of it for yourselves and for others. And then you can engage other types of processes that help maybe this group as a whole to get into dialogue with each other and to envision what the future might look like. So Ian Kendrick has done a lot of work with Three Horizons framework. That's one of the types of technologies that helps people to understand what their common shared agenda is. Because again, go back to that narrative. Once you do that type of work, then you have a shared agenda, a shared narrative. You call it what you want. I don't think there's any particular name for it. But you understand what the core elements are that you all agree on that you're going to work together on. Between mapping and making sense of it and trying to develop your shared vision, often through dialogical processes of various sorts, you can begin to shape new narratives, shape new mindsets. And Donella Meadows, thinker on leverage points for change, for system change, tells us that shaping mindsets and the ability to transcend the current mindset is the most powerful key to system change. And so that's what you're trying to do with these seeing and sense-making processes. And the connecting process is bringing those actors together. Now, during the pandemic, we've been doing that. You can do that through Zoom. You can't tease apart these processes. They're all going on simultaneously. But that sense-making process is happening when people get into dialogue. They're connecting. They, say, they can say things like, oh, I see that you are doing such and so, and that group is doing the other thing. But there's this big gap here that if we want to bring about system change, we need to fill that gap. Or, gosh, we're all doing the same thing. Maybe we need to change what we're doing so that we can be more effective and spend our resources better. So it's that kind of, that's part of the connecting process that gives people the idea of how we can aggregate together what we're doing in ways that are more effective to cohere the actions that we're taking. And I like to call it amplification, amplify what we're doing. So it's connecting participants in that transformation system and making them aware that they are a transformation system, that they have a common agenda, and that they can then move forward catalyzing various types of actions that begin to get at the underlying issues in a more holistic way. Because one of the things that living systems theory tells us and complexity tells us is you can't take apart these systems and fragment them into their pieces. You have to deal with them holistically. And so this helps us to gain more holistic approaches.
I know you've been involved with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance since its foundation, I believe. How does your work relate to the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and how that's progressing? Uh, and I know you've done some particular work and some particular insights into narratives that they might be relevant to the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Yeah, I was one of the founding supporters, I guess, of what became We All. I was there when it got merged from two older organizations and we all sort of birthed out of that and I've been following their work. They first focus on the idea of narrative very centrally. I think that's not quite as central anymore, but core memes that they're putting forward is this idea of the well-being economy. <clears throat> They've also adopted a notion of build back better. And so those are important things because they're easily understood and easily replicated. What we all, in my view, is trying to do is to take all of those many, many initiatives around new economics or next economics or new economic paradigm thinking, and again, bring them into alignment. So they are serving, in my view, as a transformation catalyst. They have got all of these folks as their members. And so they recently gave me some data uh, when their members became members submitted, saying why they thought they wanted to join and what their purpose was and everything. So I analyzed that data. And so we've got business as usual, which is the neoliberal paradigm, continue business as usual. And that's what many powerful forces want to bring back if we could. But then entities like we all and many of these new economics initiatives and many thinkers are saying, uh-uh, no, it's not a good idea to just bounce back. That's where the idea of bounce beyond comes from, too. We want to bounce beyond the current system. And we all members, when I analyzed their data, there's three stories that came out. One story is sort of a planet-centric story. It says there are planetary boundaries and we need to live within those planetary boundaries. Another story is a human-centric story. We need dignity and well-being for all human beings. And then sort of central, and what I think is probably the most powerful story, is a more integrated story, which combines the planet-centric, nature-centric recognition that we are human beings, not separate from nature. Our economies are not different from nature. Our economies are not the driving force. The driving force here really is the flourishing of nature. We humans are planetary beings who come out of nature. As David Corton often says, we are born of a living earth and we forget that at our peril. And so taking that kind of realization and then bringing in the idea that there needs to be equity and parity for all so that you can't have these huge economic divides that we now have, the gross inequalities that the pandemic has just laid open, laid bare. You have to frame your economics in a way that isn't all about wealth, where wealth is defined as financial wealth, maximization for a select group of quote unquote owners of companies because wealth, first of all, the original meaning of wealth is something about prosperity, health, well-being. And we need to bring that notion back and the economics that we generate, if it's to affirm life in all its aspects needs to support that in all respects. So that gets me to the economics thinking. I'd love you to say a few words, if you wouldn't mind, about the other sides to Sandra Waddock. There are other dimensions to you as a person. If you'd like to say a few words about your own interests. Well, so for many, many years, I was reading about the idea of the shamanism. That, to me, is based in this whole notion of complexity, complex wickedness that we talked about earlier. But I was afraid to admit to any of that. I'm a management professor in a conservative business school. 
um, in the Jesuit Catholic tradition at Boston College. And boy, going towards shamanism just wasn't something I was willing to do. And then I began to realize after I wrote a book on people I called Difference Make, who were the folks who started what I called also the corporate responsibility infrastructure. So all of the things like the UN Global Compact or Global Reporting Initiative, these kinds of initiatives, which really attempt to hold business more accountable and more responsible. And I wrote this book in 2008 called The Difference Makers. And I realized that those people, they were individuals and they crossed all these boundaries. And I started thinking about shamans in that context as well. And then I thought, well, let me interview some academics because there's some folks in my field, my management academics, who also do that kind of work. And so I went ahead and I thought, I'm gonna call these folks intellectual shamans. And at the time there were two papers on shamanism in the management literature that I could find. And they're both written by the same people. They were written by Carolyn Egri and Peter Frost. And I knew Carolyn and I didn't know Peter, but I went to see him at a presentation because Carolyn said, you need to meet him. He's a shaman, he's a true shaman. Cause I was saying to her, I've got this idea. So I went and interviewed, then I interviewed 28 really well-known management academics and developed this idea of the intellectual shaman. Still terrified, got the data, terrified terrified to print it, terrified to say that these people were shamans, because basically that's kind of a coming out for me too, as being very interested in shamanism and having been studying with a shaman for the last 20 years now, that kind of puts a stamp on it. So the shamans, similar to what we've been talking about, the shamans are focused on healing. So all shamans are healers. Most traditional shamans in traditional communities focus on healing individual patients. The recognition is that if a person gets sick in a traditional community, it's because there's something wrong with the cultural mythology, the story that they tell each other. Back to narrative again. So all this stuff comes together in a weird way. And so in order to heal the patient, they need to gather new information and change the story. So the traditional shaman does that by drumming or sometimes taking drugs or dancing, all kinds of activities to get into a trance state, to gather information from spiritual realms and bring that back so that they can change the mythology and help heal the patient. So the healing function is key, but there's also the connecting function. So that ability to go to other realms is the connecting function, to gather information others might not see. Now, I argued in the book on intellectual shamans that that connecting function can be cross-disciplinary, it can be working from the theory to the practice. Intellectually, there are any number of ways that we can do that kind of cross-boundary stuff. It's connecting ideas, it's like pulling them from different sources. And you can see in my work that I do that, right? That's just part of how I operate. So it's healing, connecting, and then the third function for the intellectual shaman is sense-making. And again, it goes right to what we were talking about with the transformation catalyst. It's a shamanic activity because it's bringing things together that wouldn't otherwise come together, crossing those boundaries and having them act in different ways, reshaping and resense making. So that's one piece of it. And then during the course of all of this, I had played guitar in college. Terrible. I, I never knew that people could play with other people. And during the course of all of this, I met somebody who said, oh, well, we have these sing-alongs in our house somebody's house every week why don't you come along so i went and got a new guitar remembered the chords a little bit but i couldn't play with anything and i couldn't sing either but i just started going and was having a blast and then i found this music camp and decided to go to this music camp and i've been going ever since probably 2003 i think 2003 ish it's a week up in new hampshire it's fabulous and 
I've learned to be a songwriter. I have taken singing lessons. I have groups of community people who like to do various types of music. I'm particularly these days doing bluegrass music because those are the people who like to jam the most. And what I like to do is play music with other people. But I also write songs and sometimes post them on Facebook and YouTube. Just to wrap it up, Sandra, somehow I think we're at a very special moment in time, uh, like there are things happening. So I'd like you to, from your perspective, from all the work you've been doing and the particular perspective that you're looking at what's going on, do you see it as being special and would you have any words about the future? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy to get discouraged about the future. And sometimes I do because I think the kinds of crises we're facing, the climate crisis, the inequality crisis, the racial injustice crises, the ethnic problems, species extinction, there's just many, many huge problems in the world. But that said, what I see emerging in various communities that I'm involved with is a recognition of the depth of the problems and a recognition that the change has to come from us. Gandhi said, we must be the change we want to see in the world. And so lots of people are coming together. And these, the, the idea of the transformation catalyst in a sense gives me hope because it is the type of entity that we need to bring together people who are doing good work but don't have the clout to deal with the powers that be because that's the problem we have this huge amount of wealth and power kind of situated in the hands of not that many people and big institutions big corporations and lots and lots of on the ground initiatives and people of goodwill who are trying to make change in the world. And somehow, if we can get this idea of the transformation catalyst out there and more entities can begin to take on that function, then I think there's hope to develop the kinds of transformation systems to build the world that we all want to live in and to deal with the problems that we have. So I do have some hope. I have to have that hope. I couldn't continue working. That was Dr. Sandra Waddock, a professor of management at Boston College who holds the Galligan Chair of Strategy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Tune in again at the end of July for our next episode. Many thanks once again to Dr. Sandra Waddock for her participation and to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Good day, Shiv Galer Slan, Good day, Kate or Ella. 